Thank you. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 42 with me today. Psalm 42. I want to read this psalm before we get started here. Psalm 42 reads this way. You're familiar with the first couple of verses, I'm sure, but maybe not with the whole thing. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food night and day, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them into procession to the house of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan, from the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Pray with me. Father, we come before you looking at this powerful hymn, a powerful song that speaks to our hearts because we've all been here. We all know of the agony and discouragement of life. Uh, Harold prayed about that during his prayer time. We live in a world that's broken by sin, and only the blood of Jesus Christ can remedy that. But until, Lord, you return, we still live in this world that is crooked and bent and perverse and desperate need, Lord, of your guidance and your help and your, and your presence with us. And so as we open up the scriptures this morning and look at these wonderful psalms, may they be psalms that speak to our hearts and help us at this time in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most popular books that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great preachers of our times, died some years ago, ever wrote was a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And it was so popular because depression is so common. And from what I read, it's getting more and more common all along. Uh, comedian Irma Bombeck, some of you might remember her from a few years ago, she wrote a book on the same topic but gave it a much happier title. She says, if life is a bowl of cherries, why am I living in the pits? Well, maybe the author of Psalm 42 and 43 uh, would identify with Irma. Ten different times in this, these two psalms, he says, why? Why? He wants to know why life is like it is right now in his life. Originally, these two psalms apparently were, were one psalm. Uh, it's obvious if you read the two psalms together that they overlap and, and pr uh, pretty much the same psalm or covering the same material, some of the same words. They were written by, uh, it says here at the, at the opening there, it says written by the sons of Korah. We're not exactly sure who they were. They were Levites. Uh, the, this is not a psalm of David. But these are Levites, part of the, uh, the branch that uh, served in the tabernacle and the temple and leading in worship and so forth. Uh, the author is uh, quite dejected as I read this to you. You, you saw that. He's discouraged. 
He's downtrodden. He's downcast. Uh, he writes uh, what is sometimes called a, a lament psalm, and you're going to hear that word several times this morning, a psalm of lament. About a third of all the psalms are psalms of lament. Uh, not all the psalms, a lot of the psalms have pieces in it, but about a third, about 50 of the psalms have are covered this same theme of, of sorrow, grief, distress, and discouragement. And so this is not an uncommon theme in the book of Psalms. Uh, this means that uh, we're looking at a psalm that talks about sadness. It talks about struggle. It talks about distress. And the psalmists are not afraid to admit that. They own it. They say, yes, I am down. I am discouraged. I am hurting. And they admit, admit that. But these psalms lay for us a pattern as Christians as to how we are to deal with sorrow and sadness and discouragement in this world in distress. That's exactly what uh, Pastor Mark Vrokop, uh, author Vrokop, I think, author of a very helpful book that uh, we use in our counseling ministry here, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, uh, is the name of the book. He discovered in his darkest hour what he would call lament. Following the stillborn birth of his little girl, Sylvia, in 2004, this pastor experienced deep sorrow in his life such as he had never known before. And he didn't know how to handle that very well. And it started him on a long journey, he said a lifetime journey, of lament, which became a means of grace, he said, to his soul. As he began to look at the world through new eyes, as he began to look through at the world through these, uh, the eyes of the, of the psalmist, he began to realize that Christians have suffered and struggled throughout time. Believers have always had a hard time with life. Life is tough. And we grieve. And to say we don't grieve, that we don't get sorrowful, that we don't get downtrodden, to say that is a lie. It's a disguise. It's not true. And so we see that, but we also find out that, that as we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. That we grieve very differently. Christians grieve differently than the world. And we grieve, he, he, he put the term to it, the, we grieve with lament. And that what he means by that is that it's the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. How do we process pain in light of the goodness of God and the reality of pain? That's the, that's the Psalms of lament. And they lay a pattern for us on how to deal with these things God's way. He, he, as he looked at the Psalms, these 50 Psalms, he began to see a pattern. Time and time again, these Psalms did the same thing. They, they, first of all, they had four elements to them. First of all, there was a turning to God. Secondly, there was a complaint. The psalmist complained to God. Thirdly, they ask in prayer for God to do something. And finally, it leads to trust. We're going to follow that pattern today as we go through this, what I think is the greatest of all the lament psalms, uh, because it is more of a general psalms of, that hit every category of life. And I find them very fascinating. They'll touch every one of our lives somewhere. And so we're going to turn to these two psalms today, and we're going to take these four elements and look at them together and see how God wants us to deal with sorrow and grief. And we start, first of all, by turning to God. And verses 1 and 2 are very familiar to us. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
These two, two verses are very familiar to us. They're a, part, they're a part of a lot of devotional books. They're on covers of different things. They're on plaques. But they're usually they're taken out of context. And it's because they're so familiar that we probably don't really know what they're talking about. And so we revisit them today and we go back and look that the psalmist here is separated from God. He is uh, he's struggling because of that separation from God. If you look down at verse 6, he says that uh, he's on the peaks of, of Mount Hermon and Mount Mizar and, and in the land of Jordan. That means that he's in the northern region of, uh, of Israel. And he, uh, if some think perhaps he is traveling from the north towards Babylon for some reason. Maybe he's a captive. Some think maybe a prisoner of war. And he's traveling down through this region. And from that peak, the peaks of Mount Hermon, is the, is the last time you would be able to view Jerusalem and the land that he loved uh, with clarity. Be at a great distance, but you could see it from the peak there. And as he looks down off the mountaintop there towards Jerusalem and towards the, the temple or the tabernacle, depending on what time period this is, as he does that, he sees a great emptiness in his own heart. He looks at himself. He's not where he wants to be. He's not where he had worshipped God before. Remember, he is part of the Levitical priesthood. His whole life has been wrapped around worship of God in one way or the other. And he can't do that now because he's not in Jerusalem. He's not at the temple. And he feels a deep separation from God. His spiritual tank is empty. And he cries out, he says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. As the deer that is thirsty needs water to be satisfied, so we need, we need the Lord to have spiritual sustenance and satisfaction. And so he feels cut off from God here. It's, his, his spiritual tank is empty. I suppose we've all had the great privilege of running out of gas somewhere. Uh, we're driving our car along, and, and we can, you know what? We say to ourselves, I can make it the two more miles to the filling station down the street and save one penny a gallon on gas. If I, I can make it, I know I can make it, and then we hear that sound. We've all heard it. Isn't that a great sound? Chug, chug. And we pull off to the side of the road, and there we are, out of gas, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're just sitting there. What do we need? We need to get some to the filling station, but we can't. Our, our tank is empty. And here we have a man whose spiritual tank is empty, and the only thing that's going to satisfy it is God. And so what does he do? He turns to the one who can satisfy his thirst, and the only one that can satisfy his thirst. And let me say, as I, even as I say this, as we talk about turning to God as the first element in this whole process, you must first turn to God for salvation. That's your first turning. That's your initial turning. Nothing else matters. Do, applying all the rest I'm going to say this morning to a life that does not know God is simply behavioral modification. It's not going to help you much. You must first turn to the Lord. Jim mentioned that as he talked about propitiation just a while ago. Our, our great need, our deepest need, our long-term need, our eternal need is to have our sins forgiven by Almighty God because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for us. And until we've done that, folks, there is no hope for true satisfaction. Our souls will thirst for now and all eternity for the living God that we'll never know. Think about that. In 1 Thessalonians, it talks about the fact that in, in eternity, the unbeliever will be separated forever 
from God, forever living in a land of thirst, forever living in a land of emptiness, forever living in a land of, of dissatisfaction. That is our eternal destiny without Christ. And so our first turning is always to the Lord Jesus Christ for satisfaction, for life. I had uh, Harold read a moment ago Psalm 63, 1 to 8. We won't read it again. It's a parallel psalm, very, very similar. I encourage you to read it together with these psalms too in your own study. And so first of all, he turns to God. He doesn't turn to other people. He doesn't turn to other things. He turns to God. The second element is complaint. Verses 3 to 7 and 9 to 11 talk about his complaint. He actually complains to God. Notice some of these uh, verses. Verse, verse 3, my tears have been my food night and day. He cries all the time. You ever been there? You just can't hardly stop crying. You know, a commercial comes on about, about hamburgers and you break down in tears. You're, you're just always hurting Writing night and day. Verse 5, he says, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you been disturbed within me? Despair. Disturbance. Verse 6, he goes on to say, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Oh God, my despair. I, I'm just hurting. I'm just empty. I'm complaining, Lord. In verse 9, he goes on to say, I will say to, to God of my rock, Why have you forgotten me? What an interesting verse. God is his rock. He knows God is his rock. And yet he cries out, why have you forgotten me? Why have you turned on me? Jesus said something similar from the cross, didn't he? Yes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the psalmist cries out in the same way. He feels abandoned by God. You ever been there? If you haven't been, you will be. You'll feel that way. It won't be true, but you'll feel that way at times. What are we to do at, at times like that? Well, first of all, we need to decide, discover why we feel that way. Why is the psalmist feeling abandoned by God? There's three sources here that we can see. Number one is that uh, he is taunted by the ungodly. People are making fun of his faith at this time. Look at, at verse 3. My, my tears have been my food night and day, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Look at verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now, it's not likely that these who are taunting him are atheists. That was very unusual in those cultures in ancient times. They, they believed in God or gods or something. But they're making fun of him because he's trusting in God when things aren't looking very good. When things have turned on him and life is, is in desperation. And yet he says he trusts God and they're making fun of him. It's painful to be made fun of, isn't it? It's painful to have people taunt you and, 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 hurt and say such things. It's one thing to be hurt. It's another thing to be the butt of jokes of other people. Second source is the memories of better times. Verse 4, the memories of better times. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festivals. Sweet memories can swing both ways, can't they? Uh, on the negative side, they can bring sadness as we remember period, precious periods of time. I, when I look at pictures from the past, I always have that kind of bittersweet thing. I, I, on my phone, I suppose everybody else's, I don't know. Uh, I've, I've got this thing that pops up periodically and says, this ought to happen six years ago today. You got that? I cannot resist that. 
I just, I'm just addicted to that little button when that happens. It came up this morning when I was getting ready for the sermon and comes up. Here's what happened six years ago. And so I poke it and I get to see all these sweet pictures of the past and so forth. It's always kind of bittersweet because those memories are wonderful. Those are memories of people I love. Those are memories of times I enjoyed, but those are gone. And those memories are gone. And some of those people are gone. And those circumstances are gone. And there's always that bittersweet thing. And he's talking especially about worship memories. You know, he's talking here in verse 4 about going up with the throng and leading them in procession and going to worship with God's people. And he remembers those times. And, and he's so sad because he can't do that now. And quite frankly, apparently, he doesn't know if he ever will. How painful that would be. I told you last week about my childhood a bit, and now my mother had uh, asked God to give her a, a child, and I was it, for good or bad. But I, I, and she, she and my dad took us to church. We got saved, and my life was changed in that little church. I told you about my little church in the country in the primitive time. You know, that old building still stands. It was built sometime in 1850 or something like that. And that old church building still stands. Now, the church grew a lot larger in time, became a mega church of sorts. There's buildings all over the landscape out there now. But the old building still stands. And once in a while when I'm back that way, I drive through the countryside to look at my old church building. And I've gone there for some reason for a service occasionally or a funeral, which I've done a few times. We'll be there. And Marshall will turn around and I'm gone. I'm a wanderer she would tell you, and I've wandered away, and I've gone back to that old church building way off on the other side of the campus that still stands. Why do I do that, outside of being a little nutty? Why do I do that? <laughs> Thank you. You, you, don't, you don't know me yet, buddy. Uh, I do that because the memories are there. I remember being there singing as a little boy with a, a congregation that loved the Lord. I remember the Word of God being open and taught. I remember people loving me. I remember people taking time to take me through the Word of God. Those are all sweet, sweet memories. But they're there no more. That church has changed. It's not the church it used to be. But the memories are there. And here's our, here's our man. He remembers those days of great worship with God that are now no more available to him. Whether they ever will be, he doesn't know. And so that is why another reason he is struggling so deeply with his distress. And here's a third source. Uh, he knows that, and this is the big one, he knows that God is ultimately responsible for his difficulties. This is a hard theological dilemma. Verse 7, he says this, Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your ways have rolled over me. One of the greatest dilemmas, the theological discussions we can have is in this area. How can the almighty sovereign God of the universe who can do anything that he wants to do, how is it that he can allow me to go through this? Where is he here? Why am I hurting here when God himself, the sovereign God of the universe, could stop that. And not only that, but notice he says, deep calls to deep, the sound of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves, these are God's. Now we could kick back and forth theologically whether or not God brought this into his life or allowed it into his life. It really doesn't matter. God could have stopped it. God could change it. Nothing happens in your life, my friend, by accident. 
You didn't get up this morning and come here by accident. Almighty God is in charge of all things, and we know that, but we don't always understand how He works in our lives. And our psalmist is deeply concerned about that. Matter of fact, he says in this verse, he, he says, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. That means deep calls to deep means that the waves just keep coming. Just keep rolling over him. Uh, I'm not a big ocean person. I know some of you would love to live on the beach and go out in the ocean. I could care less about the ocean. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of happy that the new earth, according to Revelation 21 will have no ocean. Amen? No. There'll be trees there, though. Okay? So I'm going to get my woods. You're not going to get your beach. Okay? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay? Nevertheless, I've, I've been in the ocean a few times. And the, the, I remember vividly, well, probably the last time I was in the ocean was in Brazil. Some of the most beautiful beaches you ever see there. And I, I went out in the ocean... I was speaking at a conference they had there. I went out in the ocean. I thought, look at those waves coming in. I wonder what, what you know, it looked pretty benign. What would happen if I just went out there and let them hit me? Okay, well, I found out. <laughs> I went out there. The waves hit me, and it rolled me over like I was a feather. I, I was under the water six feet. I thought I was going to die. And I got up, and it hit me again and again. And that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, your, your breakers your, are, are breaking over me. Your deep calls to deep. Your waves. God, you're doing this. Either you're doing it directly or you're allowing it. We can argue that. But these are God's. And he has a point and a purpose behind even these kinds of things. And so he's pondering these things. Rokop, who talked about this in his book, says, these, these passages teach us it's all right to complain if your complaint is done properly. How do you complain properly to God? Let, let's give you four ways you complain properly to God. I think these are in his book. Number one, come humbly. Come humbly. Don't come to God with your fist raised. Don't come with your pride. Come with your pain. Come to God humbly before him. Secondly, pray the Bible. And by that we mean, uh, go to the scriptures and see how people in the scriptures actually dealt with lament and sorrow and difficulty. The Psalms are given to us in particular to teach us and to train us on how we deal with the difficulties of life. Look at the scriptures. See how they teach us. Thirdly, be honest. Uh, God already knows what's in your heart, right? I remember it almost as if it was yesterday, the first time that ever came to me. I was in high school, junior or senior, and I thought, you know, I, I really can't be honest with God, you know. I don't want to tell God what's in my heart and my mind because God's not going to like that. So I'm going to kind of hide from God. Now, that's silliness, right? You can't do that. And I remember there was a substitute, substitute teacher there one day. She was a pastor's wife in the area, and I only knew her briefly, but I respected her. She was talking to some other people, and I was just listening and she was talking about this. That's back in the days when at school you could actually talk about God. You know, and she was talking to these, these folks about the Lord. And she says, I, I'm just honest with God. Sometimes if I'm mad at God, I tell him that. And at first I just, oh. But then again, if that's what's going on, God knows that, right? So I'm not hiding anything from God. What's the point? Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't be mean. But tell him what's on your heart. Honestly. And then finally, don't just complain. You know, complaint 
is not meant to be an end in itself. If you're just a complainer, complaining over and over, week after week, year after year, all you do is become bitter. You nothing resolved. Complain is not, uh, your sorrows that lead to complain are not meant to keep you there. It's meant to move you on. And that, and the reason why it leads you to the third element, and that is request or ask. Verses what? Go down to chapter 43. Psalm 43. Verses 1 to 3. Vindicate me, O God, and, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Suffering's kind of like a snow globe. You know those snow globes? We have one uh, at Christmas time we bring out. A lot of people have snow globes. And you, uh, that might have an idyllic picture of a village or the manger scene. Ours has a, a, a shepherd with a lamb on his back, on his shoulders, carrying his lamb. And there he sits on our snow globe, peaceful, quiet, enjoying life. And we take that thing and turn it upside down and shake it. Now shake it with all of our might. And we turn it back and the snow comes filtering down. And from our perspective, it's beautiful. From the guy in the globe, he's not so happy. Right? His world just got turned upside down. Right? That's what happens when we get hit with the sorrows of life that, that are really hurting us. But when the snow settles down, clarity steps in. And we begin to see what God is up to in our lives. He didn't bring that sorrow in your life for mean purposes. He didn't do it for accident. He's bringing it to your life for a purpose. And we begin to see the clarity. Having presented his uh, complaints to the Lord, he has some petitions. Three of them that we see here. He's going to ask God for three things. Number one, justice. In verse one, vindicate me, O God, plead my my case against the ungodly nation. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. He prays for the Lord to set things right. He prays for the Lord to, to deal with these people who have hurt him. Now, we're going to do that at times. We're going to have this issue where somebody has hurt us, right? It, it may be a, an unkind word. It may be a mistreatment of some kind. Some, a spouse or a child or a parent may turn their back on you. That happens, doesn't it? The Christians as well. Uh, somebody may, some slick promoter might come along and steal your, your bank account or, or your identity. It's happening more and more in our tech-savvy world. We have a friend or one we thought was a friend turn their back on us and, and speak lies about us and slander. We have a coworker who sabotages us and does harm to our reputation at work. These things happen and will continue to happen until the Lord comes back. But I want you to note here, he asks the Lord to vindicate him. He doesn't take his own revenge. Throughout Scripture, it's consistent. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 is the most clear statement of this. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. If anything needs to be set right, the Lord will do it. And He'll do it perfectly. It will not be overdone. It'll be perfect. Leave it to Him. And so He does not say, Lord, let me get them. He says, Lord, you take care of it. Second request has to do with renewed fellowship with the Lord. Verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning? 
Uh, what a mixed verse. You see, see what it's saying? He starts out, you are my strength. Look at what you are, God. You are my strength. But why have you rejected me? Why do I go, do I go about in sorrow and mourning so often? What, why is that the case? Uh, he's looking for a renewed fellowship with the Lord to come along, and he, he's, he's bothered by the fact that that isn't here, and he doesn't know quite what to do with it. There's an old song that we don't in our hymn books anymore. It's been written about a hundred years ago. But it, uh, I was thinking about it as I was looking at these verses. It's an old song that says, Does Jesus care? Remember that song? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Oh yes, He cares. I know He cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior care. And then another verse. Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does He care enough to be near? Oh yes, He cares. I know He cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. I was written over a hundred years ago. Nothing's changed. We hurt. And Jesus cares. And he's longing to, to experience that again. And then he prays for one more thing. He asks for one more thing. For God to lead him. In verse 3 he says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Light brings clarity. Light lets us see what's out there. Let me see, Lord. Let me, get, let me give the perspective that you have on all that is happening to me. Let me see. Let me see these things. And then he, he prays for the truth. May I see not only with clarity, but may I see the truth that opposes lies and opposes deception and reveals God's promises. Now all that leads to a final element, and that is the element of, tr of trust. We go back to Psalm 52, 42, and we notice here as you've read these psalms with me this morning that in verse 5, in verse 8, in verse 11... A lot of the same thing. Matter of fact, verse 5, verse 11, and chapter 43, uh, verse 5 are all almost identical. They're kind of the chorus to the song and the psalm here. And each of these reiterates despair. Each says this, verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? They all say the same thing. Is they're disturbed. He's disturbed. And yet he also says that each one of them hope in God. I will again praise Him. As we look over these verses, uh, I think we can observe three important things that we take away. Number one, we must not minimize or dodge the anguish that this psalmist is experiencing and that you might experience. Don't minimize what he's going through here. I was reading one commentary on this psalm, a well-respected man of God, and he wrote this in his commentary. He says, this describes the upward look of a downcast soul that found peace in trusting God. And I read that about three times, and then I wrote beside the words, Did he? Is that really what these verses are saying? Did he find peace here? I don't see peace here. He, he made that up. It's not in the, not in the text. Don't minimize the pain that you might go through. Don't minimize the pain of other people. 
Secondly, second observation, he is, he is still challenging his soul at the end of these Psalms. Verse four, Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? He's still struggling here. He doesn't end on a happy note. He doesn't end saying, it's all done, I'm, I'm back to normal, it's all peaceful, it's all good. He doesn't say that. His sorrow and difficulties are still there, and he's still dealing with them. This is no one, two, three step message for how to get over depression. It's not read three verses, say a prayer, and poof, you're healed. That is not what these Psalms are about. We need to, the scriptures are far more profound than these superficial remedies that we come up with sometimes. He is not, he's not minimizing in the least how much it hurts for him to go through what he's going through. And he doesn't want us to minimize what we go through either. He wants us to recognize it and see it. And the thing is here, folks, he has his theology on straight. I want to go back to 42.2. Look at what he knows about God. In verse 2, he says, uh, uh, he calls God his li the living God. He knows God is alive and well. In 42, verse 8, he speaks of God's loving kindness, his merciful, gracious love toward us. In 42.8, he calls God my life. In 42.9, he says, he is my rock. In 43.2, he is my strength. In 43.4, he says to God, my exceeding joy. My joy, my exceeding joy. He has his theology on straight, and yet he still struggles. What, what gives? That takes us to our final observation. The psalmist begins to find some relief in the word hope. Three different times in these verses, he says his hope is in God. Hope is a word that's translated in verse 5, verse 11, and verse uh, chapter 40, Psalm 43, 5. In some translations is wait. Because that's what the word means. It means waiting with confidence. Now the, you don't wait for something that you already have. You don't hope for something that's already here. It isn't here yet. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have hope. Why does he have hope? Because he knows who God is. And his trust is not in his circumstances. It's in the God that he knows he can trust. Waiting is not a waste. There are things we'll see in the dark, my friends, that we would never see in the light. God brings us to those places for purposes. He says here at the end, though, I will, yet I will yet praise him. I know I will, if not in this life and another. I will yet praise him. I have that hope because I know who my God is. Now, there's no easy solutions in this passage. This is not easy, easy stuff. Graham Scroggie, an old pastor from the past, said this psalm gives expressions to conflicting emotions such as the people of God have experienced in all ages. Sorrow and song, fear and faith, Doubt and devotion are strangely intermingled. Yet Vokop writes this, Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It asks two questions. Where are you, God? And if you love me, why is this happening? Lament brings, begins with turning to God. It's followed up by laying out our complaints. It leads to our specific requests, and it ultimately leads to trust and praise. 
That's the Psalms of lament. The struggle may never go away. It may continue. You know what? We don't know if this guy ever came back to Jerusalem. And I don't know if your particular problem and sorrow that you face will ever be better. It may not be. I don't know that. I can't promise you that. But we know that we will grow in our hope and in our trust if we trust in Him who is trustworthy. And that's what these Psalms are about. Not to minimize our struggle, but the fact the Lord is leading us to a place where He wants to take us. In Marianne Robinson's wonderful fictional book, Home, she writes, Weary or bitter or bewildered as we may be, God is faithful. Let us wander so we will know, or let me say it this way, He lets us wander so we will know what it means to come home. Give that some thought. Father, we thank you for your wonderful truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have a God that we can turn to during these time, any time of sorrow and grief and discouragement, that you are there, and despite our feelings, despite our circumstances, despite whatever comes our way, our hope is in you and not in ourselves. And we know, Lord, you will be faithful. And we pray in Jesus' name and we give you thanks. Amen.